Imagine how much better the world would be if everyone woke up well-rested every day. That's why I and the team make The Sleepy Bookshelf. Join us in this mission. You can help by supporting the show via our premium feed, which will get you ad-free access to the entire bookshelf and exclusive bonus episodes. If premium isn't for you, that's okay. Recommending your favorite episode to a friend or family member is just as meaningful. Thank you for your support, and I hope you sleep well tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to be here with you. Tonight, we'll be returning to The Hound of the Baskervilles. But before that, I'll give you some time to settle down for the night. Give yourself a nice, big stretch where you are, allowing all the tension to release from your muscles. You have nothing left to do today but to get a good night's sleep. That's a nice feeling, isn't it? Now let's take some deep breaths to calm our minds. Inhale deeply and mentally collect all the thoughts still occupying your concentration. And exhale, letting them all go. Lovely. Last time, Watson was continuing his letter to Sherlock Holmes. He described the other neighbor we haven't met yet, Mr. Franklin, who has a passion for the law and will often go out of his way to cause problems in the community to allow himself to be engaged in some legal battle. Watson went on to describe an odd occurrence one night when he heard footsteps in the corridor outside his room. On investigation, he saw Barrymore tiptoeing through the house with a candle. Watson followed behind him and saw him enter a disused room where he held his candle to the window, groaned, and then turned away. In a following letter, he told Holmes of Sir Henry and Miss Stapleton's meeting on the moor, which appeared to have been intruded by her very angry brother. Stapleton later visited to apologize and request Sir Henry give him three months to come around to the idea of his sister and Sir Henry being together. Watson also explained that in catching Barrymore in his strange nighttime ritual, he and Sir Henry managed to reveal that Barrymore had been sending signals to the escaped convict on the moor. The convict was apparently Mrs. Barrymore's brother, to whom they were providing food. And so, we pick back up tonight, with Watson continuing his second letter to Holmes and Miss Barrymore about to explain her familial connection to the infamous Notting Hill murderer. 
So just relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Chapter 9 continued. Sir Henry and I both stared at the woman in amazement. Was it possible that this stolidly respectable person was of the same blood as one of the most notorious criminals in the country? This, then, was the explanation of the stealthy expeditions at night and the light at the window. Yes, sir. My name was Selden, and he is my younger brother, said Mrs. Barrymore. We humored him too much when he was a lad, and gave him his own way in everything, until he came to think that the world was made for his pleasure, and that he could do what he liked in it. Then, as he grew older, he met wicked companions and the devil entered into him until he broke my mother's heart and dragged our name in the dirt. From crime to crime he sank lower and lower until it is only the mercy of God which has snatched him from the scaffold. But to me, sir, he was always the little curly-headed boy that I had nursed and played with as an elder sister would. That was why he broke prison, sir. He knew that I was here and that we could not refuse to help him. When he dragged himself here one night, weary and starving, with the warders hard at his heels, what could we do? We took him in and fed him and cared for him. Then you returned, sir and my brother thought he would be safer on the moor than anywhere else until the hue and cry was over. So he lay in hiding there. But every second night, we made sure if he was still there by putting a light in the window. And if there was an answer, my husband took out some bread and meat to him. Every day we hoped that he was gone, but as long as he was there, we could not desert him. That is the whole truth, as I am an honest woman, and you will see that if there is blame in the matter, it does not lie with my husband, but with me, for whose sake he has done all that he has. The woman's words came with an intense earnestness, which carried conviction with them. Is this true, Barrymore? asked the baronet. Yes, Sir Henry, said he. Every word of it. Well, I cannot blame you for standing by your own wife, said Sir Henry. Forget what I have said. Go to your room, you two, and we shall talk further about this matter in the morning. When they were gone, we looked out of the window again. Sir Henry had flung it open, and the cold night wind beat in upon our faces. Far away in the black distance, there still glowed that one tiny point of yellow light. 
I wonder he dares, said Sir Henry. It may be so placed as to be only visible from here, said I. Very likely, said he. How far do you think it is? Out by the cleft tor, I think, said I, hardly a mile or two off. Well, it cannot be far if Barrymore had to carry out the food to it, said he. And he is waiting, this villain beside that candle. By thunder, Watson, I am going out to take that man. The same thought had crossed my own mind. It was not as if the Barrymores had taken us into their confidence. Their secret had been forced from them. The man was a danger to the community, an unmitigated scoundrel for whom there was neither pity nor excuse. We were only doing our duty in taking the chance of putting him back where he could do no harm. With his brutal and violent nature, others would have to pay the price if we held our hands. Any night, for example, our neighbors, the Stapletons, might be attacked by him, and it may have been the thought of this which made Sir Henry so keen upon the adventure. I will come, said I. Then get your revolver and put on your boots, he replied. The sooner we start, the better, as the fellow may put out his light and be off. In five minutes, we were outside the door, starting upon our expedition. We hurried through the dark shrubbery amid the dull moaning of the autumn wind and the rustle of the falling leaves. The night air was heavy with the smell of damp and decay. Now and again, the moon peeped out for an instant but clouds were driving over the face of the sky, and just as we came out on the moor, a thin rain began to fall. The light still burned steadily in front. Are you armed? I asked. I have a hunting crop, said Sir Henry. We must close in on him rapidly, for he is said to be a desperate fellow said I. We shall take him by surprise and have him at our mercy before he can resist. I say, Watson, said the baronet, what would Holmes say to this? How about that hour of darkness in which the power of evil is exalted? As if in answer to his words, there rose suddenly out of the vast gloom of the moor, that strange cry which I had already heard upon the borders of the great Grimpen Mire. It came with the wind through the silence of the night, a long, deep mutter, then a rising howl, and then the sad moan in which it died away. Again and again it sounded, the whole air throbbing with it, strident, wild and menacing. 
The baronet caught my sleeve, and his face glimmered white through the darkness. My God, what's that, Watson? I don't know, I answered. It's a sound they have on the moor. I heard it once before. It died away, and an absolute silence closed in upon us. We stood straining our ears, but nothing came. Watson, said the baronet, it was the cry of a hound. My blood ran cold in my veins, for there was a break in his voice which told of the sudden horror which had seized him. What do they call this sound? he asked, the folk on the countryside. Why should you mind what they call it? said I. Tell me, Watson, said he. What do they say of it? I hesitated, but could not escape the question. They say it is the cry of the Hound of the Baskervilles. He groaned and was silent for a few moments. A hound it was, he said at last, but it seemed to come from miles away, over yonder, I think. It was hard to say whence it came, I replied. It rose and fell with the wind, said he. Isn't that the direction of the Grimpen Mire? Yes, it is, I nodded. Well, it was up there. Come now, Watson. Didn't you think yourself that it was the cry of a hound? I am not a child, said he. You need not fear to speak the truth. Stapleton was with me when I heard it last, I answered. He said that it might be the calling of a strange bird. No, no, it was a hound, Sir Henry replied. My God, can there be some truth in all these stories? Is it possible that I am really in danger from so dark a cause? You don't believe it, do you, Watson? I shook my head. No. And yet, it was one thing to laugh about it in London, said he, and it is another to stand out here in the darkness of the moor and to hear such a cry as that. And my uncle, there was the footprint of the hound beside him as he lay. It all fits together. I don't think that I am a coward, Watson, but that sound seemed to freeze my very blood. Feel my hand. It was as cold as a block of marble. You'll be all right tomorrow, I told him. I don't think I'll get that cry out of my head, said he. What do you advise that we do now? Shall we turn back? I proposed. No, by thunder, we have come out to get our man, and we will do it, said Sir Henry. We are after the convict. Come on, we'll see it through if all the fiends of the pit were loose upon the moor. We stumbled slowly along in the darkness, 
with the black loom of the craggy hills around us and the yellow speck of light burning steadily in front. There is nothing so deceptive as the distance of a light upon a pitch-dark night. Sometimes the glimmer seemed to be far away upon the horizon, and sometimes it might have been within a few yards of us. But at last, we could see whence it came, and then we knew that we were indeed very close. A guttering candle was stuck in a crevice of the rocks, which flanked it on each side so as to keep the wind from it, and also to prevent it from being visible, save the direction of Baskerville Hall. A boulder of granite concealed our approach, and crouching behind it, we gazed over it at the signal light. It was strange to see this single candle burning there in the middle of the moor, with no sign of life near it just the one straight yellow flame and the gleam of the rock on each side of it. What shall we do now? whispered Sir Henry. Wait here, I replied. He must be near this light. Let us see if we can get a glimpse of him. The words were hardly out of my mouth when we both saw him. Over the rocks, in the crevice of which the candle burned, there was thrust out an evil face, a terrible animal face, all seamed and scored with vile passions. It was foul with mire, with a bristling beard, and hung with matted hair. The light beneath him was reflected in his small, cunning eyes, which peered fiercely to right and left through the darkness like a crafty animal who has heard the steps of the hunters. Something had evidently aroused his suspicions. It may have been that Barrymore had some private signal which we had neglected to give, or the fellow may have had some other reason for thinking that all was not well, but I could read his fears upon his wicked face. Any instant he might dash out the light and vanish in the darkness. I sprang forward, therefore, and Sir Henry did the same. At the same moment, the convict screamed out a curse at us and hurled a rock which splintered up against the boulder which had sheltered us. I caught one glimpse of his short, squat, strongly built figure as he sprang to his feet and turned to run. At the same moment, by a lucky chance, the moon broke through the clouds. We rushed over the brow of the hill, and there was our man, running with great speed down the other side, springing over the stones in his way 
with the activity of a mountain goat. A lucky long shot of my revolver might have crippled him, but I had brought it only to defend myself if attacked and not to shoot an unarmed man who was running away. We were both swift runners and in fairly good training, but we soon found that we had no chance of overtaking him. We saw him for a long time in the moonlight until he was only a small speck moving swiftly among the boulders upon the side of a distant hill. We ran and ran until we were completely blown but the space between us grew ever wider. Finally, we stopped and sat panting on two rocks while we watched him disappearing in the distance. And it was at this moment that there occurred a most strange and unexpected thing. We had risen from our rocks and we were turning to go home having abandoned the hopeless chase. The moon was low upon the right, and the jagged pinnacle of a granite tor stood up against the lower curve of its silver disk. There, outlined as black as an ebony statue on that shining background, I saw the figure of a man upon the tor. Do not think that it was a delusion, Holmes. I assure you that I have never in my life seen anything more clearly. As far as I could judge, the figure was that of a tall, thin man. He stood with his legs a little separated, his arms folded, his head bowed as if he were brooding over that enormous wilderness of peat and granite which lay before him. He might have been the very spirit of that terrible place. It was not the convict. This man was far from the place where the latter had disappeared. Besides, he was a much taller man, With a cry of surprise, I pointed him out to the baronet, but in the instant during which I had turned to grasp his arm, the man was gone. There was the sharp pinnacle of granite still cutting the lower edge of the moon, but its peak bore no trace of that silent and motionless figure. I wished to go in that direction and to search the tour, but it was some distance away. The baronet's nerves were still quivering from that cry which recalled the dark story of his family, and he was not in the mood for fresh adventures. He had not seen this lonely man upon the tour and could not feel the thrill which his strange presence and his commanding attitude had given to me. A warder, no doubt, said he. The moor has been thick with them since this fellow escaped. Well, perhaps his explanation may be the right one, 
but I should like to have some further proof of it. Today, we mean to communicate to the Princetown people where they should look for their missing man, but it is hard lines that we have not actually had the triumph of bringing him back as our own prisoner. Such are the adventures of last night, and you must acknowledge, my dear Holmes, that I have done you very well in the matter of a report. Much of what I tell you is no doubt quite irrelevant, but still, I feel that it is best that I should let you have all the facts and leave you to select for yourself those which will be most of service to you in helping you to your conclusions. We are certainly making some progress. So far as the Barrymores go, we have found the motive of their actions, and that has cleared up the situation very much. But the moor, with its mysteries and strange inhabitants, remains as inscrutable as ever. Perhaps in my next, I may be able to throw some light upon this also. Best of all would it be if you could come down to us. In any case, you will hear from me again in the course of the next few days. Chapter 10 Extract from the Diary of Dr. Watson So far, I have been able to quote from the reports which I have forwarded during these early days to Sherlock Holmes. Now, however, I have arrived at a point in my narrative where I am compelled to abandon this method and to trust once more to my recollections, aided by the diary which I kept at the time. A few extracts from the letter will carry me on to those scenes which are indelibly fixed in every detail upon my memory. I proceed, then, from the morning which followed our chase of the convict and our other strange experiences upon the moor. October 16th A dull and foggy day with a drizzle of rain. The house is banked in with rolling clouds, which rise now and then to show the dreary curves of the moor, with thin, silver veins upon the sides of the hills and the distant boulders gleaming where the light strikes upon their wet faces. It is melancholy, outside and in. The baronet is in a black reaction after the excitements of the night. I'm conscious myself of a weight at my heart and a feeling of impending danger ever-present danger, which is the more terrible because I am unable to define it. And have I not cause for such a feeling? Consider the long sequence of incidents which have all pointed to some sinister influence which is at work around us. There is the death of the last occupant of the hall, fulfilling so exactly the conditions of the family legend and there are the repeated reports from the peasants of the appearance of a strange creature upon the moor. 
twice I have with my own ears heard the sound which resembled the distant baying of a hound. It is incredible, impossible, that it should really be outside the ordinary laws of nature. A spectral hound which leaves material footmarks and fills the air with its howling is surely not to be thought of. Stapleton may fall in with such a superstition, and Mortimer also, but if I have one quality upon earth, it is common sense, and nothing will persuade me to believe such a thing. To do so would be to descend to the level of these poor peasants, who are not content with a mere fiend dog, but must needs describe him with hellfire shooting from his mouth and eyes. Holmes would not listen to such fancies, and I am his agent. But facts are facts, and I have twice heard this crying upon the moor. Suppose that there were really some huge hound loose upon it, That would go far to explaining everything. But where could such a hound lie concealed? Where did it get its food? Where did it come from? How was it that no one saw it by day? It must be confessed that the natural explanation offers almost as many difficulties as the other. And always, apart from the hound, there is the fact of the human agency in London, the man in the cab, and the letter which warned Sir Henry against the moor. This, at least, was real, but it might have been the work of a protecting friend as easily as of an enemy. Where is that friend or enemy now? Has he remained in London, or has he followed us down here? Could he be the stranger whom I saw upon the tour? It is true that I have had only the one glance at him, and yet there are some things to which I am ready to swear. He is no one whom I have seen down here, and I have now met all the neighbours. The figure was far taller than that of Stapleton, far thinner than that of Franklin. Barrymore, it might possibly have been, but we had left him behind us, and I am certain that he could not have followed us. A stranger, then, is still dogging us, just as a stranger dogged us in London. We have never shaken him off. If I could lay my hands upon that man, then at last we might find ourselves at the end of all our difficulties. To this one purpose, I must now devote all my energies. My first impulse was to tell Sir Henry all my plans. My second, and wisest one, is to play my own game and speak as little as possible to anyone. He is silent and distrait. His nerves have been strangely shaken by that sound upon the moor. I will say nothing to add to his anxieties, but I will take my own steps to attain my own end. 
We had a small scene this morning after breakfast. Barrymore asked leave to speak with Sir Henry, and they were closeted in his study some little time. Sitting in the billiard room, I more than once heard the sound of voices raised, and I had a pretty good idea what the point was which was under discussion. After a time, the baronet opened his door and called for me. Barrymore considers that he has a grievance, he said. He thinks that it was unfair on our part to hunt his brother-in-law down when he, of his own free will, had told us the secret. The butler was standing very pale, but very collected before us. I may have spoken too warmly, sir, said he, and if I have, I'm sure that I beg your pardon. At the same time, I was very much surprised when I heard you two gentlemen come back this morning and learned that you had been chasing Selden. The poor fellow has enough to fight against without my putting more upon his track. If you have told us of your own free will, it would have been a different thing, said the baronet. You only told us, or rather your wife only told us, when it was forced from you and you could not help yourself. I didn't think you would have taken advantage of it, Sir Henry, said Barrymore. The man is a public danger, said the baronet. There are two lonely houses scattered over the moor, and he is a fellow who would stick at nothing. You only want to get a glimpse of his face to see that. Look at Mr. Stapleton's house, for example, with no one but himself to defend it. There's no safety for anyone until he is under lock and key. He'll break into no house, sir. I give you my solemn word upon that, said Barrymore but he will never trouble anyone in this country again. I assure you, Sir Henry, that in a very few days, the necessary arrangements will have been made and he will be on his way to South America. For God's sake, sir, I beg of you not to let the police know that he is still on the moor. They have given up the chase there and he can lie quiet until the ship is ready for him. You can't tell on him without getting my wife and me into trouble. I beg you, sir, to say nothing to the police. Sir Henry turned to me. What do you say, Watson? I shrugged my shoulders. If he were safely out of the country, it would relieve the taxpayer of a burden. But how about the chance of his holding someone up before he goes? asked he. He would not do anything so mad, sir, Barrymore answered. We have provided him with all that he can want. To commit a crime would be to show where he was hiding. That is true, said Sir Henry. God bless you, sir, and thank you from my heart, said Barrymore. It would have killed my poor wife had he been taken again. 
I guess we are aiding and abetting a felony, Watson, said Sir Henry. But after what we have heard, I don't feel as if I could give the man up. So there is an end of it. All right, Barrymore, you can go. With a few broken words of gratitude, the man turned, but he hesitated and then came back. You have been so kind to us, sir, that I should like to do the best I can for you in return, he said. I know something, Sir Henry, and perhaps I should have said it before, but it was long after the inquest that I found it out. I have never breathed a word about it yet to mortal man. It's about poor Sir Charles's death. The baronet and I were both upon our feet. Do you know how he died? No, sir, I don't know that. Or what then? Sir Henry asked. I know why he was at the gate at that hour, Barrymore replied. It was to meet a woman. Sir Henry showed his surprise. To meet a woman? He? Barrymore nodded. Yes, sir. And the woman's name? The baronet asked. I can't give you the name, sir, he said, but I can give you the initials. Her initials were L.L. How do you know this, Barrymore? He asked. Well, Sir Henry, your uncle had a letter that morning, said the butler. He had usually a great many letters, for he was a public man and well known for his kind heart, so that everyone who was in trouble was glad to turn to him. But that morning, as it chanced, there was only this one letter, so I took the more notice of it. It was from Coombe Tracy, and it was addressed in a woman's hand. I thought no more of the matter, and never would have done had it not been for my wife. Only a few weeks ago, she was cleaning out Sir Charles's study. It had never been touched since his death, and she found the ashes of a burned letter in the back of the grate. The greater part of it was charred to pieces, but one little slip, the end of a page, hung together, and the writing could still be read, though it was grey on a black background. It seemed to us to be a postscript at the end of the letter, and it said, Please, please, as you are a gentleman, burn this letter and be at the gate by ten o'clock. Beneath it were signed the initials L.L. Have you got that slip? Sir Henry asked. No, sir. It was crumbled all to bits after we moved it, Barrymore answered. Sir Henry looked thoughtful. Had Sir Charles received any other letters in the same writing? Well, sir, I took no particular notice of his letters, said the butler. I should not have noticed this one, only it happened to come alone. 
and you have no idea who L.L. is, the baronet inquired. No, sir, no more than you have, said he. But I expect if we could lay our hands upon that lady, we should know more about Sir Charles's death. I cannot understand, Barrymore, how you came to conceal this important information, said the baronet. Well, sir, it was immediately after that our own trouble came to us, he said. And then again, sir, we were both of us very fond of Sir Charles, as well we might be, considering all that he has done for us. To rake this up couldn't help our poor master, and it's well to go carefully when there is a lady in the case. You thought it might injure his reputation, Sir Henry remarked. Well, sir, I thought no good could come of it, said the butler. But now you have been kind to us, and I feel as if it would be treating you unfairly not to tell you all that I know about the matter. Very good, Barrymore, you can go. When the butler had left us, Sir Henry turned to me. Well, Watson, what do you think of this new light? I shook my head. It seems to leave the darkness rather blacker than before. So I think, said he. But if we can only trace L.L., it should clear up the business. We have gained that much. We know that there is someone who has the facts, if we can only find her. What do you think we should do? Let Holmes know about all this at once, said I. It will give him the clue for which he has been seeking. I am much mistaken if it does not bring him down. I went at once to my room and drew up my report of the morning's conversation for Holmes. It was evident to me that he had been very busy of late, for the notes which I had from Baker Street were few and short, with no comments upon the information which I had supplied, and hardly any reference to my mission. No doubt his blackmailing case is absorbing all his faculties. And yet, this new factor must surely arrest his attention and renew his interest. I wish that he were here. October 17th. All day today, the rain poured down, rustling on the ivy and dripping from the eaves. I thought of the convict out upon the bleak, cold, shelterless moor. Poor devil. Whatever his crimes, he has suffered something to atone for them. And then I thought of that other one, the face in the cab, the figure against the moon. Was he also out in that deluge, the unseen watcher, the man of darkness? In the evening, I put on my waterproof and I walked far upon the sodden moor, full of dark imaginings, the rain beating upon my face and the wind whistling about my ears.
God help those who wander into the great mire now, for even the firm uplands are becoming a morass. I found the black tor upon which I had seen the solitary watcher, and from its craggy summit I looked out myself across the melancholy downs. Rain squalls drifted across their russet face, and the heavy, slate-coloured clouds hung low over the landscape, trailing in grey wreaths down the sides of the fantastic hills. In the distant hollow on the left, half hidden by the mist, the two thin towers of Baskerville Hall rose above the trees. They were the only signs of human life which I could see, save only those prehistoric huts which lay thickly upon the slopes of the hills. Nowhere was there any trace of that lonely man whom I had seen on the same spot two nights before. As I walked back, I was overtaken by Dr. Mortimer, driving in his dog cart over a rough moorland track which led from the outlying farmhouse of Falmire. He has been very attentive to us, and hardly a day has passed that he has not called at the hall to see how we were getting on. He insisted upon my climbing into his dog cart, and he gave me a lift homeward. I found him much troubled over the disappearance of his little spaniel. It had wandered onto the moor and had never come back. I gave him such consolation as I might, but I do not fancy that he will see his little dog again. By the way, Mortimer, said I as we jolted along the rough road, I suppose there are a few people living within driving distance of this whom you do not know. Hardly any, I think, said he. Can you then tell me the name of any woman whose initials are LL? I asked. He thought for a few minutes. No, said he. There are a few laboring folk for whom I can't answer, but among the farmers or gentry, there is no one whose initials are those. Wait a bit, though, he added after a pause. There is Laura Lyons. Her initials are LL, but she lives in Coombe Tracy. Who is she? I asked. She is Franklin's daughter, said he. What? Old Franklin the Crank, I said. Mortimer nodded. Exactly. She married an artist named Lyons, who came sketching on the moor. He proved to be a blackguard and deserted her. The fault, from what I hear, may not have entirely been on one side. Her father refused to have anything to do with her because she had married without his consent, and perhaps for one or two other reasons as well. 
So between the old sinner and the young one, the girl has had a pretty bad time. How does she live? I asked. I fancy old Franklin allows her a pittance, but it cannot be more, for his own affairs are considerably involved, said he. Whatever she may have deserved, one could not allow her to go hopelessly to the bad. Her story got about, and several of the people here did something to enable her to earn an honest living. Stapleton did for one, and Sir Charles for another. I gave a trifle myself. It was to set her up in a typewriting business. He wanted to know the object of my inquiries, but I managed to satisfy his curiosity without telling him too much, for there is no reason why we should take anyone into our confidence. Tomorrow morning, I shall find my way to Coombe Tracy and see if I can see this Mrs. Laura Lyons of equivocal reputation. A long step will have been made towards clearing one incident in this chain of mysteries. I'm certainly developing the wisdom of the serpent, for when Mortimer pressed his questions to an inconvenient extent, I asked him casually about his work, and so heard of nothing else for the rest of our drive. I have not lived for years with Sherlock Holmes for nothing.'